Well, good morning, everyone. If you are new here, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors at First Free Church, and I'm glad you're joining us today, whether you are in the room or watching on one of the screens around the facility or watching online. We're glad to have you with us this morning as we study God's Word together. What a beautiful time of worship we had this morning, wasn't it? Man, that was great. Praise God for who He is and that He allows us to gather here and worship Him together like we do. That was just awesome, and it really sets us up beautifully for what we're going to study this morning. I did want to mention something, too. For the last couple of weeks, you probably noticed that we've been testing out some different furniture configurations around the facility, just kind of seeing where things are going to go. And, you know, we've been talking for a couple months about some updates that we're going to do. So you're going to see soon uh, some more updates around the campus and just want to let you know that so you don't walk in one day and all of a sudden you're surprised and think you're in the wrong church. We wouldn't want that. We are going to keep this location and this address, but we are going to be making some changes, uh, some new ceiling tiles, some new carpets, some new wall colors, and some new furniture, all things like that, just to, to freshen up the place. So I want you to be aware of that and ready for that. Um, but we're, we're excited. We're excited about putting some new looks on things, and I think it's going to keep things really fresh and, uh, and enjoyable, and hopefully create some great spaces for us to engage with each other too. That's one of the things we're paying close attention to is creating more opportunities for small groups to gather, for people to just get together over a cup of coffee and have a a discipleship meeting together or just get together and talk. So that's going to be going on over the next few months here at the church. Well, we're back in the book of Mark, as Don mentioned earlier, and this is part six of seven parts of Mark. And so what we've been doing is working our way through the book over uh, about a year and a half now, maybe a year and a quarter. Don said that we started last year in April. That was um, a long ways before I came here. So I came here back in November is when I started preaching here. I've been here about eight months now and um, eight, nine months. I've been loving this with you guys. And, and I'm getting to continue on what Don and John started. And of course, they're helping me with that too. In fact, Don is going to be preaching soon through the book of Mark as well. So here in part six, I want to give you a chance to kind of get caught up in in some of the things we've been doing through Mark. You know, we've been alternating with our series to kind of keep those things fresh. And one of the things that we're going to learn about today is in Mark chapter 12. You can go ahead and turn there if you want to. In Mark chapter 12, Mark says that Jesus began to teach them using stories. He began to teach them using stories, and I think stories are so amazing. I'm sure you do too. Um, stories, stories move us. Stories are compelling to us. Stories are, are this incredible thing that help us to communicate truths in a way that maybe if I were just communicating normally, it wouldn't have the same impact. My kids love stories. It's so much easier to try to teach them something through a story. Now, with my kids, when they want me to read a story to them, a lot of times they want me to do it in like a goofy voice, or they'll have me change a word around, or Jackson will say, Daddy, Daddy, do it wrong. He wants me to read the story wrong so that he can correct me. And that's the funniest thing in the world to him, is when I get to a word and I say, it's supposed to be red, and I say blue, and he goes, no, Dad, it's blue, you know, and he tries to change it on me. My kids, they love stories, and really all of us do. All of us love stories. If I try to communicate a truth to you, like the truth that you should be prepared for hard times. You should prepare ahead. It's a biblical principle. You should be ready, prepared for hard times. If I communicate that to you just through normal words, you might think about it for a little while. But if I communicate that to you by telling you the story of the grasshopper and the ant, that old fable, 
you'll remember that for a lifetime. In fact, for probably most of you, as soon as I mention that, you're like, oh yeah, I remember that story of the grasshopper, how he doesn't prepare and then the ants are prepared and then the grasshopper tries to go and get food from the ant and depending on which version of the story you read, they kind of kick the grasshopper out and let him die. Yeah, that story, you remember that and it has an impact on you, not just intellectually, like a lecture, but it has an impact on you emotionally. You, you kind of connect with that story and it anthropomorphizes those, those creatures and you sort of see yourselves in one of those. Am I the grasshopper? Am I the ant? And that sticks with you. You'll be thinking about that at night and it gets into your long-term memory. So stories have a powerful impact on us. And what is so cool is that Jesus was a master storyteller. Jesus was not some dry, boring lecturer that just got up and sort of talked in front of his notes and just kind of gave information. He told stories. He told really incredible stories, relevant stories. His stories always had a deeper meaning to them. Sometimes they had amazing twists where the audience thought he was going one way and then he ended up going another way. Jesus was a master storyteller. And these stories that he told, they told deeper truths about the things of God and about God's heart. In fact, that's what stories are. A lot of times we'll call them parables. Jesus' stories were like windows into the heart of God. They helped people to see how God was perceiving a certain situation. They challenged people to wrestle with moral dilemmas and imagine how they would respond in those situations. And Jesus would give these stories vivid details. These stories were dripping with symbolism. And if you were listening to these stories as they were given by Jesus, these were not mythological stories. These were not fairy tale fantasies. These were real life things that they related to, that they could understand. They were very contemporary. And they revealed oftentimes a little picture of how God perceives different situations by providing a situation that we can relate to. We're going to study one of these stories today. It's in Mark chapter 12, like I mentioned. But unless you understand some of the context and history behind these stories, it's really difficult to see just how amazing Jesus was in in his communication. Everything has a reason. Everything has a purpose. And we read it today and we go, "Uh, I don't relate to that. Our story today is about a man who owns a vineyard. And I'm just curious, does anyone own a vineyard here? Maybe you don't want to raise your hand if you do. Does anybody own a vineyard? It's not a very relatable story to us today. Has anyone ever been a tenant who worked in a vineyard? Anyone? No? Okay. It's not a very relatable story to us today. But in Jesus' day, it was incredibly relatable. This would have made absolute sense to the people who were listening to this. They, they all knew of landowners who had property and had moved away like we're going to see in our story today. So this is an incredibly relatable story and we have to know the context here. So let's just back up a little bit and talk about the gospel of Mark. Because, you know, we've been out of it for a few weeks now, so we've got to get back into it together. The gospel of Mark as you saw in the bumper video, was written by a guy named John Mark. But John Mark was not one of the apostles. And so John Mark got eyewitness testimony from the apostle Peter. And he wrote that down. And when he did it, he was very particular about how he did it. He was writing primarily to a Roman Gentile audience, Mark was. And so he wrote things very systematically in a certain order. And you see the way Mark structures things. One thing leads to another thing leads to another thing. And if you're not looking at it carefully, you might miss that. And you might think it's kind of all over the place. And yet Mark is setting up an argument. He is building a case through narrative, through story. 
and making a case for a certain hypothesis that he has that he wants his audience to wrestle with. There's a certain hypothesis he is going to make here, and, and actually we'll see once we get to the end of this book in part seven in a couple months now, when we get to that, we'll see that he's actually going to leave this story very open-ended. He's not going to tie it up with a neat bow because he wants you to wrestle with what he's saying. And here it is. Here is the hypothesis of Mark. Here's the argument that he's making. This is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And here's the big claim. The big truth claim here is that Jesus is the Messiah. And a frequent term used for the Messiah was the Son of God. So when you see that, that had, that had often been used as a term for the Messiah. And so this big claim is that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And that's what Mark is going to try to prove. And so the first half of Mark, as you saw in the, in the video there, the first half of Mark, Mark 1 through about 8 verse 26, is all about demonstrating, yes, he is the Messiah. And then you get to 827 through chapter 10, where the disciples start to wrestle with this and realize, and Peter says, you are the Messiah, and the disciples know, and Jesus takes them aside, and he trains them for a while, gives them some ministry intensives, if you will. Now that they know he's the Messiah, they still don't quite know what that means, but they do believe he's the Messiah. That's a turning point in the book of Mark. And then we get to Mark chapter 11. And in Mark chapter 11... Through the end of the book, chapter 16, Mark describes how Jesus would fulfill his mission as the Messiah. So the first part of Mark is, is Jesus the Messiah? Yes. Then we have a middle part, kind of the climax of it, which is, do the disciples recognize it? Yes, now they do. What are they going to do with it? Lots of confusion, lots of chaos, lots of, I don't know what this really means. We've got the the transfiguration that's in there where they see Jesus in his glory, and they're going, what does all of this mean? And they still kind of think he's going to overthrow the Romans. And then we get to the second half, which is, how is Jesus going to fulfill his mission as the Messiah? And the people that believed Jesus was the Messiah, they really thought that Jesus was there to overthrow Rome, that he was going to throw off those oppressors and set up a a rule that was going to be favorable to the Jewish people, and he was going to be their savior in a very physical sense. But God had plans that were much, much bigger, not just freedom from Rome, but freedom from sin. Not just freedom from an earthly oppressor, but freedom from a spiritual oppressor. Jesus didn't want to just save them from this temporary government that was over them that they despised. He wanted to save them from something that was going to affect them for all of eternity. That's what the Messiah was here to do. The mission of Jesus was so much bigger than just freeing the people from their earthly oppressor. Jesus was here to free them from the oppressor of their souls. It was a big mission that Jesus had. That's the big picture overview of Mark. And then we get to chapter 11. We're going to zoom in a little bit more. And I just want to show you what is in chapter 11. We went through this a few weeks ago in Mark. But in case you don't remember, you might just want to turn there in your Bibles. You can follow along with me and see what is Jesus going to do here as he plays out this role of the Messiah. First of all, in verses 1 through 11, we have the triumphant entry. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, and the crowds gather around him. They're so excited that he's there. They think he's the Messiah, and they shout out this this phrase. They say, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God, or Hosanna, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is a really interesting thing for them to shout, because this comes from Psalm 118. That was a psalm 
that was said every Passover. Every Jew is very familiar with Psalm 15 through, Psalm 115 through Psalm 118. Those were read through, sang through every Passover. And so here's a phrase from Psalm 118. It's kind of a messianic chapter of the Psalms, and they're shouting this out at Jesus. And Matthew tells us, it's not in Mark, but back in Matthew, the same account, same story, Matthew says that the religious leaders, upon hearing them applying Psalm 118 to Jesus, they went to Jesus and demanded that he rebuke the people for applying that to him. They said, you should not allow them to be saying that about you. That's a messianic psalm. And Jesus said, if, they don't, if, if we keep them quiet, these rocks will cry out their praise. Psalm 118, the people shouting that out to him. The next day, in verses 12 through 14, Jesus comes across a fig tree that has no fruit. He uses this as a visual reminder of the religious leaders of Israel who have pr- failed to produce spiritual fruit. He then cursed it and later it withered and died. In verses 15 through 25, Jesus goes into the temple. He throws out the money changers. He kicks them out. And the religious leaders are, are frustrated with him. They, they actually decide they want to kill him at this point. And so here's what you need to know. We get to Mark chapter 11. All of a sudden, Jesus is doing things now that are directly antagonizing and provoking the religious leaders. Up until now, he's kind of kept people quiet. In fact, there have been many times where people have been healed miraculously. And Jesus said, don't tell anybody. Because he's kind of kept a low profile in a way with the leaders. And the leaders weren't quite sure about him. They were trying to test him and figure out what was going on. Now he is openly antagonizing them. He walks right into their house and kicks out the money changers who were a, a, a chief source of income for them. They could price gouge off of that. They were getting income from that. And so then in verses 27 uh, through 33, there's a confrontation that happens. And these religious leaders, they, they come in, they come to Jesus and they say, whose authority do you have that you're doing this? And Jesus asks them a question. If you'll remember, Jesus asked them this question that if they were to answer it either direction, they could either have the crowds very upset with them or they could show themselves to be liars. It either shows that they were wrong about John the Baptist or, or the crowds are going to get upset with them and the Romans who are watching from the Fortress Antonia could just come down in there and end their religious racket right now. That's what's going on in chapter 11 of Mark. And we've already been through that together, but I wanted you to have that overview because it brings us to Mark chapter 12. And you can read along in your Bible. If you have a mobile device and you want to use the YouVersion Bible app, this is already plugged in there under events. If you click on the events button, you'll see First Free Church. You can pull all this up there and read along with us or just go to efree.org slash Bible. We're going to read in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus began teaching them with stories. Sometimes we call those parables. A man planted a vineyard. He built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and built a lookout tower. Then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop, but the farmers grabbed the servant, beat him up, and sent him back empty-handed. The owner then sent another servant, but they insulted him and beat him over the head. The next servant he sent was killed. Others he sent were either beaten or killed until there was only one left, his son, whom he loved dearly. The owner finally sent him, thinking, surely 
they will respect my son. But the tenant farmers said to one another, here comes the heir to this estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him and murdered him and threw his body out of the vineyard. What do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do? Jesus asked. I'll tell you, he will come and kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. Didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. The religious leaders wanted to arrest Jesus because they realized that he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him, and they went away. Let's pause for a minute and ask God for his blessing and guidance as we study his word together. Would you, would you bow your heads with me? Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we ask you to speak to us, Lord. This is a story that was communicated by you 2,000 years ago to different people, a different time, a different place, and yet it has great, rich meaning for us today. Help us to heed the warnings that are built into this story so that we will not end up like the religious leaders that you chastised so long ago. We pray that you would bless our time as we study this together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if you grew up as a Jewish person 2,000 years ago, the setting of this story would not have been too unfamiliar to you. The idea of a guy who owned some property, who rented it out to some tenant farmers so they could manage it, and then the owner moving away, that was a normal, everyday thing. There were lots of landowners who did this in their day. Again, this is a contemporary story. This is not a unique situation. This is not a story from long ago in a place far away. This was relevant to them. And not only that, but there was also this story that Isaiah told Some 700 years earlier in Isaiah chapter 5, where we have the same setup, the same story, and really the same basic meaning back in Isaiah. And so the people generally would have been familiar with this. The religious leaders definitely would have been familiar with this. And so they would have picked up on the fact that there was this tie-in to this story in Isaiah chapter 5. In fact, Jesus is just building on this story from Isaiah 5. In Isaiah 5, there's a man that plants a vineyard. He plows the land, he clears the ground, he builds a watchtower, he makes a wine press, and then he waits for the harvest of sweet grapes. So the only difference here is he doesn't lease it out to others. He maintains it himself, but he builds the whole thing the same way. He waits for the harvest, and when he expects to get sweet grapes, he gets bitter grapes. And the vineyard here represents the Jewish people. The man planting the vineyard is God who invested so much in the Jewish people and he expected a harvest. He expected sweet grapes. He expected good spiritual fruit from the people of Israel, the Jewish people. And when it came time for the harvest, he found bitter grapes. Isaiah goes on to explain that story and he says, when God expected to find justice, he found oppression. And when God expected to find righteousness, he found violence. And so that story is what Jesus is building on 700 years later. He is taking that story that Isaiah set up that most of these people would be familiar with, with a context that they would be familiar with, and he's now building and adding a new layer to it, which is the tenant farmers. It's the same basic story, the same basic meaning. The owner of the vineyard doesn't get the fruit that he deserves. 
It's a familiar story to them. And it's possible that as Jesus started this story, that some people, maybe even the religious leaders, may have thought that he was talking about the Romans. They may have thought early on that this is a story where the Romans are the evil farmers who have sort of taken over, and now Jesus is gonna come in and make everything right. But pretty soon, the religious leaders are going to figure out that Jesus is actually condemning them. So let's explore the story a little more. You can take notes on this if you want or circle things in your Bible, but Jesus says that a man plants a vineyard. Now, this is no easy task. There was a lot of work that went into this. We know that this man had many servants, so he had a lot of people that were doing that for him, but he was paying a lot of money and investing a lot of time and money to make this happen. He plants a vineyard, a lot of manual labor. There's no tractors to work with. He can't just get out there with a tractor and plow the ground and do all of that. This is manual backbreaking labor. He builds a wall around it. That means people are getting stones one by one and putting them on top of each other to build a high wall to keep thieves out, to keep animals out. It's a lot of work. It takes a lot of time. Then he digs a pit so that when it comes harvest time, they don't have to transport the grapes somewhere else. They didn't have, have semis that they could just load the crops up on and take them to a processing plant. They had to process it right there. So he has to have the wine press right there. They get all of that ready for the juicing of the grapes. And then as if that wasn't enough, he builds a watchtower, just like the owner in Isaiah 5. He builds his watchtower, which also tells us this was no small vineyard. This was a big place if they needed a watchtower to look over it and guard it and make sure that no people or animals were getting in who shouldn't and protect this property, this investment. And then as he was content that his passive income generator was in place, he moved to another country. He probably had several properties like this. Of course, it's just a story, but that's the general idea. This is a guy who is wealthy. He has set up all of these properties. He's invested heavily in them, and then he moves to another country to retire. It was a normal thing in Jesus' day. I want to pause for a minute there and and share a question with you that you need to ask anytime you read Scripture. As we're reading the Bible each day and learning and growing into it, there's one question that we have to think of to ask every time we're reading, no matter what we're reading. And it's not just what is it saying and what does it mean to me or how do I apply it? Those are important. But one of the questions that is so critical to ask is, why was this information included here? And sometimes we can figure that out easier than others, but why is it that the author wanted to include these details, or in this case, Jesus, why does he give us all these details about how this owner set up this whole vineyard thing? And the reason, I think, for why he did that is to demonstrate just how much this owner, which represents God, had invested in this vineyard, which represents the people. In other words, to get the people to think about just how much work went into this, he could have just said, there was a man that owned a vineyard, and he leased it out to tenants. He didn't say that. There's a man that owned a vineyard and he got it ready and he planted it and he built walls and a watchtower and a wine press and he did all these things to get it ready. He invested heavily in this vineyard. He got it ready for the tenants. He put a lot of effort into it. This was an investment for him. Both the owner in the Isaiah 5 story and in the Mark 12 story represent God here. In both places, the vineyard represents the people. And the point that Jesus is making here is that God... Just as Isaiah said, God has made incredible investments in his people. And so it's appropriate for him to have expectations of them. It's only appropriate for him to expect a harvest from the people because he has invested in them. He made them into a nation. He brought them out of slavery in Egypt. 
He gave them a place to call home. He protected and defended them supernaturally. And just like the owner of the vineyard, he gave his people the best chance possible to produce spiritual fruit. He gave them many, many chances to produce spiritual fruit, to reproduce godliness in an ungodly world. They were to be his representatives on this planet. They were to be a light to the world. He even made provisions for non-Jewish people to join them in following after God because he wanted that reproduction of spiritual fruit, spiritual children. He gave them laws to live by so they could be fair and just. He set them up to produce healthy fruit. And when I was studying this passage this week, what really struck me was the question of how God has invested in me or in you. How has God invested in you like the owner of this vineyard invested in his vineyard? How has God prepared you to produce spiritual fruit? How did God draw you to himself? Think about that for a minute. How has God drawn you? Who has God placed in your life? How has God given you certain resources to be able to use in your life? How has God brought people into your life at just the right time when you needed encouragement? How has he gifted you in certain ways so that you can reproduce spiritual fruit? How has he met you in times of grief and comforted you? when you needed it the most? How has he met you in times of prayer and reading his word to grow you spiritually? How has God invested in your life just as the owner of the vineyard invested in his vineyard? If Isaiah or Jesus were to approach us today, could they make the same accusations against us and say, look at all the things God has done to invest in you? Where is the spiritual fruit to show for it? Where is God's share of the harvest? Are the grapes sweet? Or like Isaiah talked about, are they bitter? That's a scary thought. That God may have invested in us and invested in us and invested in us and we have nothing spiritually to show for it. Jesus said that when it came time for the harvest, the owner of the vineyard sent a servant to collect the rent. Now here's what's interesting. This wasn't a set fee. This was a percentage, it was a share. In other words, if the tenants did poorly, the owner got less. It was a very fair arrangement that he had with them. And and I, I think that there's an important principle for us here as well, that God interacts with us very fairly. He does not expect more from us spiritually than than we've been equipped to produce. And we're not talking about salvation here, we're talking about spiritual fruit. But different people are at different points in their walk with Jesus, and we have to recognize that. For some of you, spiritual fruit might look like serving in the nursery or in Kid Connection. For some of you, spiritual fruit might look like taking someone a meal once a month. For some of you, spiritual fruit might look like reaching out to your neighbors and building relationships with them. For some of you, spiritual fruit might look like teaching or facilitating a group. For some of you, spiritual fruit looks like many, many different things. There are hundreds of things that we could list here. And some of you are equipped and have grown to the point where a reasonable expectation of fruit for you is a few of those things a week. And some of you, a reasonable expectation of fruit based on where you're at in your walk with God right now and you're growing that might be like one of those a month. God is not expecting us to suddenly become superhero Christians that just have everything lined up. In fact, the truth is, whenever you see someone and you think that they're a superhero Christian, they've got everything figured out, that's just because you don't know them well enough yet. 
because there's no such thing. Every one of us has issues that we wrestle with, that we battle with, and we do a great job putting the right things on Instagram. So everybody thinks it's going great for us, but the truth is all of us are struggling with things. All of us are growing and working on this, and God meets us where we're at in that journey. You might be someone who looks at one of these people that they're, they're teaching every Sunday, and they're having their neighbors over all the time, and they're investing in their coworkers, and they're doing all this great stuff with their family, and they still manage to find time to wake up every morning and spend three hours in the Bible, and another two hours in prayer, and I don't even know if that's, did anybody do that here? That's a lot, but someone that's a super Christian, you look at somebody like that, and you go, I mean, I could never do that, so I'm not even going to try, because that is way too much for me to do. I can't meet that expectation. And the truth is, right now, you probably can't. The great news is that's not what God expects of you. God expects of you in proportion to how he has gifted you and how you are equipped at this time. He's not wanting you to suddenly do all these different things that you, maybe you see somebody else doing. They may be at a different point in their spiritual journey, and you may not know what's going on in their life behind the scenes. God expects of us proportionately. Never compare yourself to others when you're trying to see if you're meeting up to God's expectations. We're all at a different place in that journey. And the great thing about our God is that he enjoys cultivating that in us. I think God gets great enjoyment for seeing us step out in even the smallest little way. It's like when I see you walk in here this morning, it does very little for me. When I see you walking in here, I'm like, oh, he's walking. That's awesome. That's great. And some of you, if you break out and run, I'll go, ooh, that's pretty good for his age. He's running. Okay, that's good. I better run too, whatever's going on. But when I see a little kid that's like 18 months old start walking, that's a big deal, right? That's exciting. I remember when my kids started to walk and then started to run, it was like, oh, wow, that's amazing. I would never think that about any of you. I'm sorry. I would never be excited to see you walk or run. But for a little kid, yeah, and I think that's how God looks at us. He meets us where we're at on that journey and says, yeah, they're not there yet, but I don't expect that yet. They're not at that point yet. They're still growing. And so that step right there, that's the coolest thing in the world for me right now. God meets us where we're at. So back to our story. The owner sends a servant to collect his share of the grapes. And what did the farmers do? They responded to this owner who had treated them fairly, who gave them a fair arrangement, who had prepared this beautiful state-of-the-art vineyard facility for them and set them up for every chance of success and gave them a flexible payment structure so that they wouldn't be burdened when it came time for harvest if they had a bad year. How did they respond to him? Well, they beat the servant and they sent him back empty-handed. Now, why would they do that? Doesn't that seem foolish to you? Why would you you send a servant back empty-handed? I mean, if I were them... I shouldn't say that because now it sounded like I would be willing to do this. But if I were them and I were evil, I would want to give him just a little tiny portion of it and say, sorry, dude, that's it. That's all there is. Yeah, we had a bad year, you know. It was rough, that drought and all. Yeah. And the owner's far away. He doesn't know what the weather is here. You just give him a little bag of grapes and say, that was it, sorry. They didn't do that. They were so greedy that they wanted to keep it all. They wouldn't give him a thing, and they actually beat him and sent him away. In other words, they sent him a message. Don't come back here. Don't try this again. This is our vineyard now. And they sent him away. Why would they do that? I think they did it because they thought the owner was far away. It's not like they didn't think he existed. 
They knew he was there, but he's so far away, he's never going to do anything about this. He's so distant. I never see him around. I don't think that there's going to be any real consequence that it's going to come out of this, and so it's no big deal if I just keep all of this to myself. Everything here, even though he deserves part of it, and all of this, this whole place is basically on loan from him, but he's so far away. He's so distant. They didn't think there were ever going to be any consequences from any of this. And so what they did is they hijacked this system that the owner had established to produce fruit and resources, not only for the tenants and the owner, but the owner, remember, has a number of servants working for him. He has a lot of people who are depending on his income coming in so they can have income too, so they can have food and resources. There are a lot of people who are depending on this system that the owner set up, and these men had hijacked it and distorted it for their own purposes. And this is exactly what the religious leaders had done in Jesus' day. They had taken what God set up for the people, this system of leaders and fairness and justice and and good rules to protect the people, and they had distorted it and they had used it for their own personal gain. They took positions of authority that God had meant for shepherding the people, and they twisted it around and used it for their own benefit. In fact, Jesus would later say that they crushed the people with unbearable religious demands and never lifted a finger to help them. The many servants that the owner of the vineyard sent to the farmers represented the prophets that God had sent to the people over the centuries. One after another, opportunities to repent, to give God what he deserved. And yet again and again, the leaders of Israel beat them and killed them. And the Old Testament is filled with stories of these prophets, these messengers that God sent as he gave them opportunities to repent and be forgiven. And they sent them away because God seemed so distant to them. Surely they wouldn't face any consequences from this. Now, both the owner in the story and God could have brought judgment immediately. The owner didn't have to send multiple people to them. He didn't have to send servant after servant. He could have stepped in right away after the first servant was beaten and said, that's it, you're out of here, I'm going to take you to jail and we're going to do all this stuff. But he gave them another chance and another chance and another chance, just like God did with the nation of Israel. So finally, the owner sent his only son, who Jesus says he loved dearly. And he says something really interesting about the son. He says, surely they will respect my son. And that word for respect is really interesting because it's, it's not just a normal kind of honor, respect, because he's my son thing. It actually is the idea of respect based on shame. In other words, surely they will feel ashamed of what they have done when they see my son. That's what he thinks. But what happens? The farmers see the son, and they think, this is the heir. If we kill him, we get this whole place to ourselves. Why? Because again, they thought the owner wasn't coming back. They thought he wasn't going to do anything. There weren't going to be any consequences to this. He was far away. They didn't have to worry about him. All they had to do was kill the son who is here, and there was nothing the owner could do to them. They never expected him to come back. But then what does Jesus say the owner will do? He will return. He will kill the evil farmers. He will turn over the vineyard to new farmers who will honor their agreement and give the owner what he deserves. And this transfer of spiritual leadership from the old evil farmers to the new farmers represents the transfer of leadership that's going to happen now. 
from the religious leaders of Judaism who had been evil tenants of what God set up for them to the leaders of the new building God was creating the church. The leaders of the church who are now going to give God what he actually deserved. There was going to be a new thing put in place. God's spiritual vineyard was getting new farmers. And the old evil farmers would be brought to justice. Now that's the end of the story. But it's not the end of the lesson from Jesus. He goes on to say in verse 10, did you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. Now, that phrase is also a quote from Psalm 118. Notice what Jesus is doing here. Didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? He's saying to the religious leaders, who just a couple days prior told him to rebuke the people for using Psalm 118 in praise to him. He's saying, haven't you ever read this in the scriptures? Of course they had. They read this every Passover. They knew this probably by heart. This is a passage they were very familiar with. And I'm not sure how to interpret this other than as divine sarcasm. Do you think Jesus had a sense of humor? I think he did. He made us with a sense of humor. We're created in his image. I think Jesus had a sense of humor. In fact, I think a lot of times throughout the Old Testament, you see that with how God interacts with people, especially with the Egyptians. There's a sense of irony there. Haven't you ever read this before? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In other words, what he's saying is he's, he's taking a continuation from that story. And in that story, the son has died and the owner comes back and brings retribution on those evil farmers. But what Jesus is saying now is, yeah, that son, that cornerstone, the cornerstone the builders rejected, that has become the chief cornerstone. And so now, the religious leaders are starting to understand that he's talking about them. And if you go over to Matthew's account, Jesus says this, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. God's new people, the church. The religious leaders knew what he meant. He's talking about us. And with another great sense of irony, now they want to arrest him, and we already knew they wanted to kill him, so they want to arrest him and kill him and basically fulfill exactly what they were upset at Jesus for tying in with them. They're like the evil farmers who want to kill the son. That's exactly what they are preparing to do. So what's the application here for you and me? What do we take out of this 2,000-year-old parable story that Jesus told well, as I was reading these accounts in Isaiah and Mark, I saw four different types of people. And I'm wondering if any of these types of people reflect you and me. Are you like the bad fruit of Isaiah? Fruit that God has invested in. He's been working in your life in different ways. He's been trying to bring you along. He's been giving you opportunities. He's put people in your life who've invested in you. And yet... So far, you've produced bitter fruit for God. You haven't responded positively to him. Or maybe you're like the good fruit in Isaiah, someone who is spiritually producing for God, someone who has responded to that investment well, and has given God the fruit that he deserves. Are you like the evil farmers from Mark? 
Maybe you have a position of influence or leadership that you've been using and leveraging only for your own gain, your own personal ambition, your own personal agendas. Or are you like the new good farmers from Mark, the people who now are going to tend the vineyard and they're not just producing fruit, they're reproducing fruit. And they're giving back to God what he deserves. A leader who is using his position of influence to bring fruit for God. What kind of person are you? Bitter fruit, good fruit, old farmer, new farmer. So my prayer for us as a church is that we would be a people who would be known by producing fruit. That would be known for not just keeping everything to ourselves. That would be known for not just being the kind of vineyard where we just sort of show up to the vineyard and we kind of do our own thing and we just stay here and we enjoy the fruits on our own and we never give back to God. My prayer for us as a church, and I've been praying about this all week, is that we as a church would be that kind of vineyard that is just multiplying. They get so big that the vines are growing over the walls because we just can't stop the fruit that's producing. And we have to go build another vineyard and another vineyard and another vineyard because God is, is blessing so much, not because of what we're doing, but because of what we're, we're allowing him to do through us. Reproducing spiritual fruit that God expects, that God deserves, that God has invested in, that we so often have just kind of kept to ourselves. Do we care more? Do we prioritize more the fruit of God than our own hobbies? Do we prioritize more what God deserves, what God wants out of our lives than what we want out of our lives? Would you pray with me? Lord, you've truly given us so much. You've blessed us with tremendous resources, physically and spiritually, We are so blessed in this country, in this part of the world. We're so blessed because of the spiritual gifts that you've given us that we learned about a couple of weeks ago. You have resourced us to produce spiritual fruit. And God, so often I'm gonna be the first to confess here and say, I live my life uh, for me. Too often, God, I I live my life for the things that I wanna do. And I'm not thinking about what you wanna do through me. So my prayer for me today, which I hope is echoed by everyone in this room, everyone watched online, is that God, you would would help me to see every opportunity that there is to produce fruit for you. With my family, with my kids, with my parents, with my neighbors, with my friends, with the people that I work with, Lord, would you help us to get serious about being the kind of fruit producers that you've created us to be, that you've invested in us to be, Lord. We praise you for all of the produce that comes out of that because it really is from you. Lord, help us to produce the fruit that you want to produce through us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.